All right. Um, what a blessing. I know she's gone, but my mom has been working hard with them, so thank you to her. I'll make sure I tell her that. Um, I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me this morning to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 1252. <clears throat> we sang some good hymns today. We sang uh, a Getty, we sang a Newton, we sang a Wesley. And I was planning on quoting a hymn by Charles Wesley this morning, May of 1738. Charles Wesley was converted to Christ and exactly one year after his conversion, so May 1739, 280 years ago, he wrote a hymn to commemorate the day that his faith was awakened. And um, we sang a hymn with five stanzas. This hymn had 18 stanzas when he wrote it. And I, I want you, I'm not going to sing them all, nor am I going to quote them all. But I want you just to hear one of those stanzas this morning. I'm going to put the words up so you can read this with me. Wesley writes of Jesus, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He wrote those words one year after he had been converted to Christ. And he was just marveling at the fact that Jesus' blood had power even for him. And I especially want us to ponder together the truth of that first line, that he breaks the power of canceled sin. Anytime we come to a day like Christmas or Easter, I'm always just blown away by when you read the Bible, how many different angles you could look at this event, how many things we could say about it. And so inevitably we have to just kind of pick one angle and go with that. And this is the the angle that I want us to look at today is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God broke the power of canceled sin. We're going to see that truth together in Colossians chapter 2. And so let's read together Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 13. Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for what You have done. Lord, we, we thank You for um, what You accomplished on the cross. And uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're alive. I pray that you would give us help this morning uh, as we look into your word. God, that we would see not just the what, but also the why, why you did this. God, that we would see how this relates to us and uh, how we ought to respond to it. So God, help us to do that today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So our big idea, trying to sum up this, these three verses in one sentence, it's uh, going to be very simple. The big idea is that Christ died and rose again to break the power of canceled sin. 
I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it does, so it's a little bit easy to remember. Christ died and rose again to break the power of canceled sin. I'm borrowing that phrase, of course, from Charles Wesley, who wrote it 280 years ago, but I want you to see that the truth is way older than Charles Wesley. It's found here in the text of Scripture. It's grounded in the Bible. It's seen in these three verses we've just read, that God canceled the record of debt, sin debt, that stood against His people. And in doing that, He broke the power of the sin that He canceled. That's the conclusion to which we're going to arrive with Paul. But before we get to that conclusion, we need to sort of walk with him through the argument that leads to it. So there is a logic to what Paul says here. So I want us to think in terms of a problem and a solution. So I want us to do an exercise together. Look with me at verse 13, which we just read. And I want us to read it again. And I want you to ask yourself the question, what is the problem uh, that every human faces apart from Christ? According to Colossians 2.13, what is the problem that every human faces apart from Christ? The answer, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. So I'm going to summarize the problem in this way. Two things. We were spiritually dead and we were separated from God. If you are a believer, if Jesus is your Lord, if you've trusted in Him, this is what you were, past tense. You were dead in your trespasses. You were separated from God. If you're not in Christ, if He's not your Lord, this is what you are right now. As I'm speaking to you, spiritually dead and separated from God, which is why every time we gather, I'm praying for a miracle. I'm praying that God would speak through His Word to take people who are dead and make them alive, to take people who are separated and to unite them to Him. When, when Paul tells... I don't want us to, to get tripped up by the phrase because you say, where, where do you see separated from God? I don't want us to get tripped up by the, pray, the phrase, the uncircumcision of your flesh. Uh, circumcision had a, a, a lot more significance uh, in this time than it does in our time. And when Paul was writing this letter, he was writing to people who were ethnically Gentiles. They were non-Jews. And he's reminding them that they literally bore on their body a sign that they were not part of God's covenant people. They were alienated from God's covenant people. Paul says the same thing to the Ephesians. He says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were separated from Christ and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So it's not just about the state of their bodies. It's what that represented. They, they were separated from God as a result of being outside His covenant. And along with that separation, Paul says, there's spiritual death. You were dead in your trespasses. Not just sick, not just spiritually disabled, but dead. This is the state of every person who is not in Christ, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their background, regardless of their nationality, regardless of whether they grew up in church, regardless of whether their daddy was a deacon or their mama played the piano or anything like that. That was me. I grew up in church. My daddy was a deacon. My mama played the piano and kept the nursery. I was the poster boy Southern Baptist, okay? And yet the truth is I was dead in my trespasses, and I was separated from God, alienated from Him, hostile to Him, and by His grace He did something about it. So that's the problem. If that's the problem, what is the solution? Look again at verse 13. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. That's the solution. The problem is we were spiritually dead. 
We were separated from God, and the solution is that God made us alive together with Christ. Notice, God takes care of both parts of the problem in one solution. The problem is you were dead. The solution is God made you alive. The problem is you were separated from Christ. God made you alive together with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So God overcame our death and our separation by uniting us to His Son. And having laid out the problem and the solution, Paul now turns to the question of how. How has God done this? And this is very important. How has God made us alive together with Christ? What I want you to notice is... Each phrase here is going to explain the phrase that came just before it. So, what does it mean that we were... What's the problem? We were dead in our trespasses and separated from God. What did God do about it? He made us alive together with Him. How did God do it? Notice, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So you can just kind of walk this down logically. God made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. The trespasses in which we were dead, God has forgiven them. God made us alive in Christ by forgiving them. How has God forgiven us all our trespasses? Paul gives the answer in verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So He forgave us by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of a lifelong history of all your sins... Sinful deeds, sinful thoughts, sinful attitudes, sins you have done, righteous things you have failed to do. Now, some of you have lived longer than I have. And it's not that you're uh, more sinful than I'm going to be in my lifetime. It's just that you know more about your record than I do because you, you, know, you have more data than I do yet. But think about all those sins, everything, past, future If you've trusted in Christ, Paul says, God has forgiven you by canceling that record of debt that stood against you. That's good news, isn't it? Many people think, well, the way that we attain salvation is we we build up a list of good deeds that we hope will balance out the record of bad deeds. Paul says, no, salvation does not come by balancing the records. Salvation comes by canceling the bad record and by God uh, reckoning the good record of Christ to those who trust in Him. That's what God has done in Christ. But Paul keeps digging deeper. So, how has God made us alive together with Christ? By forgiving us our trespasses. How did He do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How has God canceled the record of debt that stood against us? You hear the answer at the end of verse 14. This He set aside. He set the record of debt aside. He canceled it by setting it aside. Not by denying its existence. Not by pretending like it never happened. Not by saying it's not so bad. He doesn't minimize the offense. But He willfully sets it aside. And how does He do that? Answer this, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So it's not that God threw out the evidence, because that would be unjust. He doesn't doesn't cancel the record by wadding it up and throwing it away. He cancels it, Paul says, by nailing it to the cross, as 
As Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Jesus Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. So I want you to imagine that record that we just talked about. And for this to happen, you'd either have to have a really long scroll or you'd have to have really tiny writing. But imagine that record of all your sin, past, future, and Jesus takes it into His hands that were nailed to the cross. And as the, the nail is driven through, it goes through not only His hand, but through that record and the blood begins to soak the paper and the record is wiped clean and the debt is canceled. That's a powerful image, but it's not exactly what Paul's saying here. More powerful than that is the fact that Jesus became the record. There's a pastor named John Piper who put it this way, parchment was not nailed to the cross, Christ was. When Paul says that God canceled the record of debt that stood against us by setting it, setting it aside, having nailed it to the cross, he means that Christ became the record of debt. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as Peter put it, He committed no sin. He Himself bore our sin in His body on the tree. So, so when you read here in Colossians 2.14 that God has canceled the record of debt by nailing it to the cross, what you need to understand is that Jesus became that record of debt. He took that debt upon Himself. He took that sin. He became that sin. And when He was nailed to the cross, the record of your sin was nailed to the cross with Him. So the problem is that we were spiritually dead, we were separated from God, utterly hopeless. Because not only were we dead, but we were separated from the one who is life. The solution is that God united us to the one who is life, namely Christ. And in so doing, He made us alive together with Him. And the way that God made us alive together with Christ was by forgiving us all our trespasses. And the way He forgave us was by canceling the record of debt. And the way He canceled the record of debt was by setting it aside. The way He set it aside was by nailing it to the cross. The way He did that was by Jesus becoming the record of debt, becoming our sin, and dying in our place. So in Christ, God canceled our sin by becoming our sin so that we might be forgiven and have life. And once we have drilled all the way down to that bedrock truth at the bottom of verse 14, we're now ready to see the conclusion that Paul draws from it. He wants us to see the result of that. And that's what he shows us in verse 15. So if verses 13 and 14 explain how God canceled sin, verse 15 explains how God broke the power of canceled sin. Notice what he says. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So in forgiving us, in making us alive, in canceling the debt... In that same act, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. It's really crucial that we understand whom Paul is describing when he speaks of the rulers and authorities. Who has been disarmed by the cross? You might think, and I wouldn't blame you for thinking this, that Paul's talking about maybe the, the Roman 
authorities, you know, the ones who crucified him. Or maybe he's talking about the Jewish rulers who conspired against him for so long, who sought a way to have him executed. Maybe that's what Paul means when he says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. But Paul uses this phrase, rulers and authorities, in a very specific way in his letters that often does not mean only earthly human rulers and authorities. It means something else. Listen, for example, to what he says in Ephesians 6, verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. So there, there's those two words, rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are all ways of speaking of the same beings. These are what we would probably refer to as demonic beings. These demonic beings may certainly operate through human rulers and authorities. They operate through systems of evil and oppression. It's not just that there are, there are evil people in the world. It's not just there, there are rulers and authorities who are evil, but there are evil systems that oppress people. They work through those things. But Paul's clear that our ultimate battle is not against flesh and blood, but against these beings, these cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are the beings that Paul is talking about in Colossians 2.15 when he says that God disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the, in the cross. At the cross of Christ, in other words, God won a decisive victory over these rulers and authorities, over Satan, over demonic beings. And so I want to parse out two ways that God won this victory, two things that He won, two ways that He disarmed the rulers and authorities. First is He broke their power to accuse us. He broke their power to accuse us. Paul has just finished saying in verses 13 and 14 that God canceled the record of debt. Then he speaks of that cancellation as a disarming. So think of, again, think of that record of sin that we've been talking about. That record of all your sin, past and future, as a weapon that Satan holds against you. And he brings it to God and he says, look, here it is. And guess what? He's right. It's just. Look, God, the wages of sin is death and here's all of Matt's sin. And what Paul is saying here in Colossians 2 is that when Christ died on the cross to cancel that record of debt, He left Satan standing there empty-handed because the debt's been canceled. It's been wiped clean. And so Satan's standing there in God's presence saying, Look, here's all Matt's sin. And God says, It's gone. It's not there. Shut up. You can hear this in Revelation 12. Where John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Satan is the accuser. 
And when God nailed the record of our sin to the cross, He took away Satan's only tool for successful accusation. He has been conquered, not with a sword, but by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony. Meaning, Jesus died, and I've trusted in Him, and so you don't have any evidence against me anymore. This is the way F.F. F. Bruce, a commentator, put it. He said, Christ, by His cross, releases His people, not only from the guilt of sin, but from its hold over them. The very instrument of disgrace and death by which the hostile forces thought they had Him in their grasp and had conquered Him forever was turned by Him into the instrument of their defeat. As He was suspended there, bound hand and foot to the wood in apparent weakness, they imagined they had Him at their mercy, and they flung themselves on Him with hostile intent, but far from suffering their attack without resistance, he grappled with them and mastered them, stripping them of their armor in which they trusted, and held them aloft in his outstretched hands, displaying to the universe their helplessness and his own unvanquished strength. Such seems to be the picture painted in these words. I think we sometimes imagine the cross as this just devastating defeat that was followed by victory on Sunday. I've probably been guilty of saying that very thing from this pulpit. But it could not be farther from the truth. It's not that on Friday Jesus was defeated and on Sunday He won. It's that on Friday He conquered, He disarmed, and on Sunday God said, Amen. On Friday, He said, it is finished. And on Sunday, God said, Amen. Indeed, it is finished. So the resurrection is God's confirmation and His endorsement of the victory that Jesus won on the cross by canceling the record of sin that stood against His people. God broke the power of Satan to accuse us. And secondly, He broke their power to deceive us. Notice what Paul says in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He didn't do this uh, in a corner somewhere. He won an open victory. Open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Now when we say that God disarmed these people, powers of darkness at the cross. I don't want you to draw the wrong conclusion from that. I don't want you to think I'm saying that Satan is completely powerless, that he can't do anything, because that's not the case. In fact, I quoted from Revelation 12, and after that voice from heaven says that the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, he goes on to say in the next verse, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So we live, as it were, in this gap between the victory that Christ achieved on the cross and the day when that victory is going to be completed and finalized at His second coming. The power of Satan to accuse the people of God has been stripped he cannot stand in the presence of God and accuse a child of God successfully because nothing sticks. But he still attempts to afflict and to deceive. 
He cannot inflict any eternal harm on a child of God, but he, he does try. He does try his very best to inflict immediate harm and to inflict temptation and trials and hurt and all sorts of things. So we don't have to be deceived because God has put him to open shame. The death and resurrection of Jesus demonstrate that the power of canceled sin has been broken. So we should not be deceived into thinking that God holds our sin against us. And we also shouldn't be deceived into thinking that, well, we should cherish our sin and, and continue in it. The power of sin and Satan to accuse and deceive has been broken. So you can think of it this way. Satan has two primary weapons in his arsenal. The first is deception and the, the second is accusation. So here's the way Satan tends to work. Before you sin, he says, it's not so bad, right? It's good. It's going to make you feel good. You need it. You deserve it. This is going to make you satisfied. Or, or maybe it's not some sin. Maybe he's just trying to tempt you to, to be despondent, to be discouraged. And he says, oh, just look at how bad things are. Where is God? You know, I, I thought God made you all these promises. Where, how is he being faithful to this? So he's doing the same thing that he did in the Garden of Eden. He's, he's coming and he's, he's saying, did God, did God really say? Did God truly say blank? So he, he first tries to deceive and then, if you sin or if you give in to that sort of discouragement, then He accuses you. Oh, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you did that again. I can't believe that you would doubt God in that way. You are so utterly hopeless. How could God ever love you? How could God ever forgive someone like you? That's how Satan operates. He, he tries to deceive you into sinning. He tries to deceive you into doubting God, into disbelieving God. And then when you fall into it, He says, Oh, you're such an awful person. And hear me when I say, Satan is a liar. Okay? His power to deceive and to accuse has been broken. At the cross, he was disarmed and he has been put to open shame. So you don't need to listen to him. Because all he's doing is he knows that his time is short. That's what, that's what John says in Revelation 12. His, his wrath is great because he knows that his time is short. And so all you have to do is remember that His time is short, that His time is coming. I don't have to listen to you. The record of debt has been canceled. God is in control. You have no accusation that you could possibly hold up in the court of God's justice. Satan is helpless to do the one thing he so desires to do, which is to condemn us, because Christ already bore our condemnation. And so we, we live in that gap where we're told in God's Word, that Jesus has won this decisive victory, that Satan has been disarmed, and that he's been put to open shame. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't always see that victory, do we? We don't always feel it when we see someone around us who's hurting, when we see things going wrong in the world. Just this morning as I was leaving uh, uh, breakfast, I looked at my phone and I had a breaking news notification over 200 um, it may be higher now but over 200 people dead in Sri Lanka um, scheduled bombings that took place at churches so you know I thought to myself okay here I'm about to get up and I'm about to talk about how Jesus has disarmed Satan he's put him to open shame and yet here I am looking at my phone and I'm saying wow it sure seems like 
He still has some, some weapons going on, doesn't he? So we look around, we, we don't always see that victory. Sometimes we look within and we don't see that victory. We think, wow, you know, I did that thing again that I, that I hate doing. Or I didn't do that thing that I want to do, you know. I wish I'd gotten up and read my Bible. I wish I'd prayed more, uh, whatever it may be. So we live in that gap. And this is when we have to exercise faith. Because this victory that was achieved at the cross and confirmed at the resurrection, this was not something that God thought up on a whim. It was something that He promised all the way back in Genesis 3. After that great liar deceived Adam and Eve, God promised him, one day there's going to be a man born of a woman. The serpent is going to bruise his heel and he is going to crush the serpent's head. And on that first resurrection morning, when Jesus walked out of that tomb, he still had the, the marks of the nails in his wrists and in his feet, but he also had the scar of the serpent's bite on his heel. But the serpent's head is crushed. And he's still wiggling, and his venom is still out there, but he has been defanged. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? So this victory is certain. It was long promised, and God was faithful to His promise, and so we can trust Him to be faithful to His promise to complete what He began. The victory that was achieved and confirmed at the death and resurrection of Jesus continues to be extended in the church as we make disciples of all nations, as we bring more and more people into the freedom from canceled sin that Christ achieved through His death and resurrection. There are people all in this county, there may be people sitting in this room right now who are under the burden and the slavery of sin. And what I'm telling you is that Christ died on the cross and was raised from the dead to break that power of canceled sin. And so until the day when He returns and the victory is completed, let us live knowing that we serve a Savior who has broken the power of canceled sin. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to the Word of God. <clears throat> I'm going to be standing at the head of this aisle. I'd love to pray with you or speak with you this morning. As I was riding to church this morning, I was listening to a, a hymn in the car. And uh, the, one of the verses said, Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, uh, bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured, love untold. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Slain by death, the God of life. 
but no grave could ever restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. Uh, I don't remember the rest of it, but you get the gist. Slain by death, the God of life. What a mystery. What a mystery. And yet, this is what God has done to reconcile us to himself. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful for your mercy, for your grace. We're so thankful, Lord, for your plan that you didn't leave salvation to chance, that you didn't twiddle your thumbs and wait for us to find our way to you, but that you came to us, that you sent your Son to us to become like us, to take on our flesh and to take on our sin, and that you raised him from the dead as our assurance that whoever puts their trust in Jesus will not be put to shame. God, help us today to behold that truth, the wondrous mystery of what you've done in Christ. Help us to respond in faith and repentance. Lord, help us to do that now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.